Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pivot Point. Thank you as always for tuning in. I always appreciate all of you who tune in and reach out, let me know your thoughts. And, and with that, let me also say how much I appreciate all of the feedback that I received from episode 53, the last episode. It means a lot to me uh, that um, you chose to feedback and that there were some things of relevance there. You know, you just never know. And isn't that the way that you put yourself out there and you just never know who you're going to resonate with? And that is really in a nutshell, isn't it? (laughs) Part of our process is that you do the work that matters and somebody will respond. We just don't know where or when or who, but they do. So last week I ended with how I got back into the film business, how grateful I was to find myself back in at the same level uh, as where I had left off. And now I'd like to go forward and talk about how did I decide to change markets? Meaning most of my film work was done in New York. So why did I decide to come to LA and how did that work out? And of course, I'm going to get into, as I said, the circumstances around writing the music for American Sniper and also for Alpha. So let's go for it, shall we? All right. I got so into the music there, I actually forgot to hit record. (laughs) So here I am, take two. Um, So I left off from the last episode that I had gotten back into the film industry and my church job was falling apart. So I was doing more work and getting more opportunities in Manhattan. And it was a really good experience. I got to live in New York for a number of years. I still lived in Nashville, but I would spend at least eight months a year in New York City. And things were going really well. Now, how do I describe this? There's a, I guess I want to just say, If you go back to the beginning of my journey, you know that the end game for me is composing. So in New York, I was getting job after job as a music editor. Now, the question is, how do you shift people's minds about who you are, what you do? I often say that Hollywood, which is meaning the film business in general, tends to look at you, me, 
as a canned good. Oh, you do music editing? You belong on this shelf. Um, you do this type of music editing? Oh, you belong on this shelf. And there are multiple shelves. Now, to shift aisles, to get into the composing aisle, that's a different, that's a different shift. And it's been a journey for me to really shift the perception of who I am. So I share all that to say it's been hard to get people to think of me as a composer, to trust me as a composer, to trust me with that creative ability to read the scenes, read the story, and know how to interpret that musically, and how do I produce that music in such a way that it is at the level that they're used to hearing. That's the journey. That's been the challenge. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and list like my credits, and I did this film in New York, and I did that film in New York, but I will say that after about two years, New York started to get pretty slow. So I'm now back at Nashville, and after a few months, I received a phone call to see if I wanted to be involved in a film directed by James McTeague. And uh, that film was called Ninja Assassin. And I would be temping the film in Chicago. And the, the dub, the final of the film, would be done in Los Angeles. So while I'm in Chicago, you know, the many months that I was there temping, not once did I get a phone call out of New York that was going to check on my availability. I mean, I, I had a job, but, you know, you start getting a feel for the climate of the area. And it was like five months, and I had already been off for a number of months. And um, I could tell that things were slowing down in New York. Uh, I had friends who were not working. Now, this was before New York City had that post-production tax credit, which definitely brought a lot more post-production work back to the city. But at that time, I knew things were slowing down. Now, I was also in the middle of my divorce, and I was feeling older as well, meaning when do I think this composing thing is going to really happen and take off? So I felt that I needed to put more energy and effort into being a composer. Now, I knew the film was going to finish in LA, and that's when I started thinking, maybe it's time to change markets. And that's what I did. Now, I know that sounds simple, so let me fill in some, some of the details here. We had to go out to LA for a couple more temp screenings, and we were getting ready to record the music, which we recorded in Berlin and uh, mixed it in London. And we had to do that twice because we had some editing that happened with the movie and, and changing, and you know how it goes. So point being is, I was in LA, not just for three weeks, four weeks for a dub, but I was in LA for about four months finishing the movie. And that gave me time to really get used to the idea of shifting markets. Now, not only did I have that time, but at the end of my trip from Europe, having been there a month, 
I came back to LA and this is when Kristen and I met. We met for coffee and it was just a coffee meeting, but we ended up talking for four hours. Clearly there was a connection that was made. And throughout the period of the dub, Kristen and I started spending more time together and we knew that this was something special. It was the beginning of our relationship and it marked a pivot point in my personal life. Now, when the film ended about three weeks later, I ended up going back to Nashville to take care of all my personal business. I had to uh, finish the divorce and deal with my home. And so I was going to be in Nashville for a little bit. Now, while I was there, I received some calls to do some jobs back in New York. Now, one of the movies that uh, I got a call for was to work with Craig McKay on the movie Babies. And I was able to do some of that work back in Nashville in my home studio and then go up to New York. And I was also writing some of the temp music. They were okay with me doing that. And I really thought that I had this opportunity to score the film. And that could have just been partly me because my focus now was I'm putting my eggs in the composing basket, if you will. So that didn't end up happening. Um, I really wasn't seen as a composer. I was seen as the music editor. Plus, they had a composer uh, in France that was going to do the film. And, you know, that's how it works out. I get it. But I was, I was disappointed. And at the same time, I felt like all the more... I needed to change markets. And that's why I share this story. It, it really um, deepened that feeling for me that I needed to change markets. Uh, babies finished up, and then I went back to Nashville, and then I came out to New York for a couple of weeks just helping a colleague work on um, a film called Chicago. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks worth of work. But in between Babies and Chicago, I did go out to LA and I rented a house for myself in Culver City and I just got myself ready so that when all of my personal business was wrapped in Nashville, I was going to go. And so when that day came, I had packed my car with all my personal belongings. Um, I rented my house to some friends and hopped in my car, and started driving west. So let me tell you about another pivot point that happened to me during my drive. It took me three days to do the trip from Nashville to LA. And on the second day, I received a phone call from a dear music supervisor friend of mine. She asked if I was available to work on a movie. I'm like, Sure. Is it, where is it? New York, LA? She goes, LA. And I said, well, I'm on my way there now. I've, I'm moving there. So it was a, a delight for both of us because she was glad that I was coming to town. And I was delighted because I had an opportunity to work on another film. And that film was The Book of Eli. 
And that is where I got to meet and work with Atticus Ross. And I got to meet Alan and Albert Hughes and Cindy Mallow. Now, you know Cindy Mallow because I interviewed her uh, way back in the beginning of Pivot Point on episode six. And I highly recommend that you go back and give it a listen. Episode six. She's had an amazing journey. So here I am. I'm coming to LA with a job. Now, I know I said I want to compose, but, you know, I still need to eat and I still need to pay the rent, literally pay the rent. (laughs) So uh, I was very fortunate. I got to LA and I had to do a little bit of an interview um, with Atticus. So let me just tell you that sometimes, you know, when we get on a job, uh, how do I want to say? All right, look, so on this film, I was replacing somebody for whatever the reasons were. Um, it just wasn't working out and that happens, you know, it's just personalities. It's not about the work. Sometimes it's just people's personalities. So I get to LA And I'm very fortunate to get on this job and meet these new people. And then what happened? Well, what I did, you know, I'm new in town. It's a new market. So I had to rely on my relationships and build new relationships. And during that time, I can tell you my very first year, once I finished that film, I decided that I was going to write music every day. And that's what I did. Every day I developed my sound, the library, the the things that feel good to me. And then I started studying privately with Jack Smalley. Now let me tell you, Jack rest in peace. Jack has passed away now, but Jack opened my world up to film composing in a way that, um, that I use all the time now. That there are tools that he showed me of how to get into a scene and how, how to in- initially approach. Um, how do I say this? See, The thing is, music is very subjective, and I I don't want to get off a beaten path here, but it's important that when people share something with you and they, they, they teach you something, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. So how how do I describe what Jack Jack taught me? I think it would be best described as he had this way of distilling down our our basic human emotions in in musical terms. Like, for example, a major scale, a major chord generally makes us feel happy as human beings, or a minor scale or a minor chord would make us feel sad. And what Jack did was give me tools that helped me associate musical ideas with the emotions that we see on the screen. So he, he gave me these tools that helped me get into a scene musically, um, a starting point, if you will. And then from there, it, it's, it's where I want to go. And 
that was my big takeaway from Jack. I still have his book, and there's so much more for me to go through. Now, how did I end up getting scoring jobs? Well, I'm, I talk to people, film independent. I remember doing a composer's um, showcase. You know, I applied to the Sundance Film Scoring Lab. Um, you just put yourself out there for things that will get you recognized and get you into community. I was able to build a new community as a composer. This is going back to what I was talking about, how the industry likes to put you in aisles and in shelves, and they go, oh, you're a music editor. Oh, you're a composer. So I was basically putting myself in a new aisle. I was a composer. And even though I was still doing music editing, I was still new. And so the new people that I was meeting got to know me as a composer. And that is how my process went. Did it go as fast as I wanted it to go? No, not at all. I remember a job that I utilized my relationships from New York City. The director was a friend of a director that I worked with from New York. And uh, I sent my music in to this director. He liked it. And was saying he'd like for me to do the music on the film. Now, this is something I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to do my best to not use names, but um, this is really important to share because it was like the one of the earliest and biggest letdowns that I almost decided to quit. In fact, I even said the words I quit. <laughs> but I realized after all these years, you know, I can't quit. Uh, that I, it's just, it's just what I do. I mean, I can quit, but I will be unhappy. So let me tell you what happened here. I received the email from the director that said he liked my music and he'd like for me to do the the score of the film. And um, I did not have representation, so I reached out to a person who I trust for guidance, and that person in in um, in turn sent me over to a couple of agents that she trusts. I went to go meet with those agents. You know, there's something about reading people's body language. They came out, their arms crossed. They weren't very welcoming. And they met with me. It didn't go well. They ridiculed my music. They said they have been working on this film for a couple of years, trying to get one of their people in to score it. And uh, rather than representing me just for this deal even, even if they didn't want to take me on as a client, but just for this deal, they didn't want to do that. So I left that meeting knowing I wasn't going to score this film. And it didn't. I didn't score that film. You know what it's like to want something so badly and then have it dangled in front of you. Yes, you can do this. And then somebody else comes and takes it away. It's a real terrible feeling. And I remember coming back and just feeling so depressed and feeling like, this sucks. Why am I doing this? And so I had to really pick myself up again 
and not, this is all emotional. You know, this is all of the emotional travels that we go through. And it taught me to not put so much stock into the yes or the no. It taught me to allow it to just pass. But I didn't get that lesson right away. I got to tell you, it was the beginning of that lesson. My dear brother, Craig McKay, would say, what, Craig? Next. That's what he would say. That's the thing. It just, okay, next, move on. You just move on. And it's really true. But at that time, it was really, really difficult. I mean, literally, I was about to throw it all away. And it taught me another thing about myself, which was, and these are pivot points about learning about yourself, which was, I tend to sabotage myself, do that self-sabotage thing, and you can destroy the things you love. And that is why I have a little fire helmet in my studio. Now, let me explain. In my studio at home, I have a wall, and I call it the Wall of Remembrance. And on that wall are items that help me remember some of the things that I've done that cause not great consequences to me. And one of those is this fire helmet. And the story is that when I was very little, something happened to me, and I'm not going to get into those details, but something happened to me and I was very angry. And I loved this fire helmet. And what I did was I grabbed my dad's hammer. I sat in the yard and I faced this neighbor whom I was angry at. And I just destroyed this helmet. And it wasn't until many, many years later that this story came back to me. And I started to understand how I destroy the things that I love out of not processing my emotions. And so I was very fortunate to A, have that understanding, and B, find a replica of this fire helmet. It's it's not literally the exact same one, but it's the same one from that time period. And that hangs on the wall to always remind me, don't destroy the things you love. Work through it. So I didn't get that film. And money is starting to get tight. I had to stop my private lessons with Jack. I studied with him for a year. I had to stop those lessons because I couldn't afford it. And Jack wasn't expensive. It just was every penny started to matter now. And so I didn't get that film. Money was tight. To become a, 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 a solo act as a composer, if you will, well, it's a marathon. Not everybody gets to just get catapulted to the top right away. And I'm in it for the long haul. And that means that sometimes I'm still needing to do music editing work. Which the irony here to me is if you go back to my earlier bonus episodes, like one or two, when I talk about meeting Elsa Blankstead and a bunch of music editors when I was in my 20s and how they told me I had to choose. I had to choose either music editing or composing. I can't do both. And here I am, decades later, I'm doing both. What am I trying to say? 
I'm trying to say that who you are, what you do, the more authentic you can become about yourself, the more you find your place. And I really believe that when you tap into who you really are, the road is going to be bumpy, but you're going to find the people who want you to do you. And that, that's an amazing journey and an amazing lesson for me. So I've had my ups and downs now, meaning while I'm trying to get more composing jobs, I ended up, you know, doing another music editing job. So this happens for me over these years as I continue working on my composing craft, the thing that I love to write, and applying to jobs, going to meetings, not getting the jobs, doing a short film. Now, I want to share with you a story about this film that I just said that I didn't get to to score. You know, I, I met with those two agents. Well, I ended up getting to music edit on it through a whole different set of circumstances. That was a little bit of, it was tough to do for me because it just felt like you're not good enough to be a composer, but you're good enough to music edit, so we'll let you music edit, but you're not good enough to be a composer on it. But the good thing that came from it is that one of the producers of that film became a good friend of mine, and we're good friends to this day. And during the time of music editing, he knew I was a composer. He heard my music. He even introduced me to the owner of the company, who really just said I didn't have the credits to do the film. But I got to know him, another relationship. But let's go forward. Later on, this same producer, whom I'm not going to mention names, this producer was producing a low-budget feature. Well, we'll call it a no-budget feature that needed a composer. And he thought of me. So I wrote some music for him, and I got the job. And I did the whole score of this film. I mean, again, I did it for free because there was no budget. But out of that, built this relationship, and we've worked together since. Also, I want to say is that what he did for me was introduce me to my first agent. That is huge. He started submitting me to different projects for different opportunities, and things were starting to to show some hope and some promise. And around that same time, I was offered to score the documentary Kidnap for Christ. Uh, I was very grateful for my friends in New York who thought of me for that film. That film went on to get into Slamdance, which is the, the, gosh, what do you call it? It just runs alongside Sundance Film Festival. And so I was up at Sundance slash Slamdance. The film did well. It got into Showtime. It had a Showtime premiere, and I think that's where you can still watch the film. So that was really a big break for me to have a film start to get some airtime. 
it was a good progression. Now, how did I end up scoring American Sniper? I mean, so Kidnap for Christ was a low-budget film, and American Sniper was the highest-grossing movie of 2014 with the director of Clint Eastwood. How does, how does that happen? So let me share a little bit about that journey. Remember I told you that when I was driving out to L.A. years earlier, a dear friend, music supervisor, called me about the Book of Eli. Well, that same person called me about this movie called Prisoners. Now, that director was Denny Villanova, and the composer was, of course, Johan Johansson. For Johan, he's an Icelandic composer, and this was his first Hollywood composing job. And the music supervisor just thought I would be a good fit, both with my experience and personality. And Johan and I got along wonderfully, and it was a wonderful fit and a wonderful time working on that movie. Now, the editors of that movie, of Prisoners, was Joel Cox and Gary Roach. Now, they, they knew I wrote music, and it may be just because of my setup or they knew my credits for Kidnap for Christ. I never really stopped to ask. But it never really interfered with the music editing job that I was doing on Prisoners. And that's partly because I keep a very strict line. I am hired as a music editor. That's what I do. I get hired as a composer. That's what I do. I don't blend. For me, I feel like I'm crossing an ethical line. I'm there to support a composer as a music editor, not to undermine that composer. And so the experience on Prisoners was a really, really great one. And when that film ended, Joel, Gary, and Alan Murray went to go and work with Clint on Jersey Boys. So probably a year goes by since that time, right? Since uh, Prisoners. And I was getting to that point where I needed to get working again, you know, because you live off your savings and you know how it is in LA. It's pretty expensive. And I also needed the hours to work to keep my health care going. So this is the story. I was visiting a friend at Warner Brothers who was doing some dialogue editing. So I thought I'd go in and say hi and have some lunch and quite honestly, see if I can get some work somehow. So I get on the lot and I know that Joel and Gary are working on a Clint movie, although I don't know what it is. I text them. I say, hey, I'm on the lot. Can I come by? I say hello. And Gary texts me back and says, sure, anytime. You know, I said, okay, I'm going to have lunch and I'll stop by after lunch. They said, great. About five minutes later, they send another text and it was like, when are you going to come over? Because we need some music for this film. And I'm like, I'll be right there. (laughs) So I went over, we chatted, and the film was American Sniper. They were temping with Clint's music and they just didn't have what they needed to hit the drama. And at the same time, Clint did not want any music in the film. But they're like, we need music here. There were certain scenes that definitely needed music. What I said was, let me write you some music. And if it works, you can temp it in. And we'll take it from there. And that's what I did. It was over a Labor Day weekend. 
And I wrote the whole weekend. And I wrote a number of pieces of music that could work like game music, where you can dial this layer in if you wanted more suspenseful or take it out or add this layer in if you wanted it to be a little bit more drony or um, supportive with interesting sounds. Or here's some action music if there's some uh, movement and you need some action. Not a chase, but just movement. We got to move the story along. So I wrote a bunch of music and I sent it to them. Now I'm going to be really honest with you. I sent it up to the guys and I went outside and sat on my front porch and I cried because I loved what I was doing. And I just wanted to always do that. It was creative. It was reading a scene. It was touching a deeper part of me. And I wanted to spend more time in that world. So I sent it to them and that was it. I didn't hear anything for a week. And then I, um, I called Gary he goes, Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, we liked it. We cut it in and we're going to show it to the producer next week. I'm like, Oh, that's great. They showed it to the producer. That was uh, Rob Lorenz at the time. And um, I didn't hear anything again. And then about another week and a half went by and Gary calls. Yeah, Rob likes it. We're going to send it up to Clint. I'm like, I'm starting to get nervous now. I'm like, okay, this is exciting and nervous, you know, two sides of the same coin. And they sent it up to Clint and he liked it. So I got a call to go up and meet with Clint. You know, can you have, uh, do you have time to meet with Clint? I'm like, do I have time to meet with Clint Eastwood? <laughs> yes. We made the meeting I walk in to the meeting and there on the couch is Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper. And then I'm sitting on the couch. So I'm sitting on a couch with Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper. What just happened there? We spotted the movie. We started talking about the movie. I was hired. That was like a Friday. The following Monday, I brought my composing gear up to a room up there at Malpaso. And I started writing. Now, that would be a great ending to the story. I could say, and the rest is history. But it's not. Keep in mind that Clint did not want music in the film. Now, what I wrote was mainly an orchestral score. It was Tempton, and so I started to reorchestrate these pieces of music and started to do show-and-tells for Clint and the producers. And I started getting cues approved. And then, about the third show-and-tell, Clint walks out of the room, and his producer walks into the room and tells me that Clint is once again thinking he doesn't want any music in the movie. And I got to tell you, my heart just sank. And I just was like, it's over. But then the producer said, he wants you to go listen to the sound design. So the producer and I walk over to the sound designer's room and I listened to what he was doing. And then I totally understood why Clint did not want music in the film. 
It's not that he didn't want music, because in the sound design was musical elements. There was arpeggiators. There was tonal things that sounded like musical tones. So it wasn't music. It was the type of music. So I realized that an orchestral score would really stick out in the sonic sound of the movie. And it would sound like it doesn't belong. It would make the movie sound like it was scored rather than you being so lost in all of the emotion of the film that you don't even know music just happened. So I asked the sound designer to give me all of the sound design in all of the music spotted scenes. So he gave me that and I went back to my studio and I rewrote my score. And I didn't do it as an orchestral score. Instead, I did it as an electronic score with some orchestral instruments like strings, but I utilized them in ways that didn't sound like a major string section. I used French horns and bassoons and bass clarinet. I just utilized specific instruments that just kept us in this world that was the world of American Sniper. Now, from that point on, I did not have any more show and tells. So I just kept on writing and doing what I thought the film was asking for. We had a recording session and we went to the dub stage. And I got to tell you, I did not even know if the music was going to stay in the movie. We mixed the music in. Everything was working. But then, you know, you do a playback for Clint. And if it doesn't stay, it doesn't stay. Fortunately for me, it stayed. I got to tell you that once the reel that we mixed that had my first music cue in it stayed and Clint okayed the reel, I was like, okay, it's in. And then we continued all the way through to the end. So it wasn't exactly like an amazing journey. It was work. And it was touch and go. And at the same time, I got to tell you, nobody knew it was going to be a hit. But here's the other thing. Clint chose to give me a credit of additional music by rather than music by, even though there is no composer listed on the film. That's his choice. And I think maybe in Clint's mind, he just thinks there was no composer on that film like he's always wanted. I really don't know. But here's what I want to share. Because of the success of that film, I really thought my career was going to take off, meaning I was going to get more opportunities. And I didn't. So much so that my agent said that this wasn't your breakout film. Now, it made me feel like there was a conspiracy. <laughs> How can the highest grossing movie, the highest grossing domestic movie of that year that I wrote the music for not be my breakout movie? But it wasn't. And remember last episode I said, everybody has a different journey. 
this is how my journey progresses. It's not like I get a straight shot. It just unfolds. But I had to deal with a lot of disillusionment. Once again, I had to deal with, well, what am I doing this for? And I'll tell you what I'm doing it for. I'm doing it I'm doing it for the process. I'm not doing it for the end. That's a big lesson for me. That's how I learned it. Is that, do you love doing the music? Sitting out on your front porch and crying because you loved what just happened? Or is it because it became the highest grossing domestic movie? These are the things that I look at in my pivot points. And now... I realize that I love writing music. I love the discovery. I love the journey. I want to do work that matters. If it becomes a huge success, well, aren't we all lucky? Because nobody really knows what film is going to be successful. But that was a huge, huge takeaway for me. And it took me about a year to recover emotionally and it really made me feel like a, an imposter. It made me feel like Hollywood didn't want me in the aisle of composer, that they wanted me in the aisle of music editor. All these head trips I had to deal with until I remember. Next, until I remember, I got to do my passion. Until I remember, it's about process not product, because I get to do this whenever I want. I get to write music any day that I want. So that's how it happened for me with American Sniper. I want to share one other thing with you about that. During the composing process, Joel came up to me, the editor, and I'll never forget this. He said to me, you may not get what you want in this movie. But you're going to be surprised at the doors that this is going to open up for you. And this was in the middle of doing the movie. So at one point, I was like, why did he say that? But I kind of look back at it now, and I feel like it's one of those divine moments where... He spoke something, and it really hit true to me. And let me tell you, it, because of American Sniper, I was commissioned by Southeastern University in Florida to write music for veterans. And I did two concerts in one year, one in the spring and one in the fall. And these concerts were full orchestral with choir. The first one was with the Imperial Symphony Orchestra of Florida and a 65-member choir. And the second one was with the University Orchestra and choir. I was commissioned to write an American Sniper suite and then also to write an original piece. And that was when I interviewed different veterans and heard their stories. And I got, to, I got to really write something about their survival. And the first piece was called One More Minute. 
And that is when I, what I recognized was, and I'm going to share this with you, just because how important this is. After hearing their story, what I learned was that one of the biggest healing moments for a veteran, especially with PTSD, is to deal with the first casualty. And what does that mean? That means you're on the field and you're in combat and you see somebody get killed. You may see your friend get killed or you may see somebody you don't know get killed or maybe you were the one that had to kill somebody. I started thinking about that moment and then it struck me, what if we had one more minute right then, right there and we connected soul to soul? What would we say to each other? How would we forgive each other? How would we interact with each other? And so that piece is about that journey, this magical moment of having one more minute right then. The second piece that I wrote for the second concert was called A Thousand Faces. And that came about because I had met with so many people and heard so much of their tragedy. It just was everybody. And it felt like a moment of loss, great, great pain and loss. And how do you turn that around? And so I composed this piece that really embodied this cacophony of sound, which I would imagine would be how it feels on the inside, having all this trauma. And then slowly brought it open with instruments that made you feel hope. So I share all this to say that Joel's words were really fulfilled, and it's not over. I also got to work with the U.S. Army Field Band, and they wanted to perform an American Sniper Suite in concert, along with other pieces, and put it on a CD that they were doing called The Soundtrack of the American Soldier. What an honor. And in some ways, I look back and Joel was right. So sometimes it just doesn't look the way you want it to look, meaning yeah, I would have liked to have had full billing. And yes, it would have been great if it opened up my career in the way I thought it was going to look. But look what I got to do. Look at the, the veterans that I got to meet and know. Some of them I know to this day, that we correspond to this day. The concert that I got to perform. And then with the U.S. Army Field Band. What an experience. Experience of a lifetime. So, doesn't always look the way we thought. Now, let me give you just one more pivot point, and that is with the movie Alpha. So how did that happen? You know, uh, as I go along, I've been doing music editing jobs and composing jobs, and so I was called to work on this movie as a music editor. And when I found out that it was Albert Hughes directing, I was thrilled. I get to work with Albert again? I haven't seen him or spoken with him since the Book of Eli. And here he is directing without his brother. They, they started to do separate projects now. What a thrill. 
And oh, just as a sidebar, check out Albert's Pivot Points, episodes 22 and 23. So great. Now, back to the story. The composer was Michael Stearns. Now, Michael, um, if you don't know Michael, go check him out. Uh, He was on my podcast, episode 31. What an amazing human being he is. And he and his wife, Joy, uh, Kristen and I are really good friends with them. They're in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We've spent time together. Love them. Working with Michael was an absolute thrill for me. And uh, so here's what happened. Michael writes the score. We finish the score. We dub the film. And the film is done. But here's where things shift. A lot of times the studio likes to get involved and go, you know, it tests well, but we like for it to test better. And we'd like to change some things. And this is where it goes a little different. They wanted to change the ending. They wanted to have more emotional music. They wanted to have melody. Um, And that is, so we finished the film. And so there was a little bit of a break. And that's when I was asked to do some music. And it wasn't like, oh, you ask, I say yes, and it happens. I had to write music. You know, you got to you got to show that you can do this. So I wrote some music for Albert, right? I wrote the Alpha's theme and played it for him. And fortunately, he liked it. And that's what's in the movie. And that's how I ended up getting the job. And the more the film changed, the more I had to keep on rescoring scenes. And honestly, the film that ended up that Michael scored and the film that I scored were two different films. The, the, the bones are there, as they say, but there are two different movies. And, um, but it was a great opportunity for me because I got to work closely with Albert. It didn't hurt my relationship with Michael because he gave me his blessing. It wasn't like one of those things where I said, you know, I don't cross, like I don't cross pollinate that way where I'm a music editor and I try to get a gig. I finished the music editing job. We finished that gig. And then I was asked, and it was a total separate gig. So everything about it for me was uh, clean. And it was a great experience working with Albert. So creative, Albert. You're so creative, dude. And we ended up recording... 40 strings, 10 brass. I was able to have a flautist, a recorder player, a viola da gamba, a cellist, and a vocalist. It it just was so grand. And I'm very proud of the score. And here is the thing that now I don't go, oh, I've made it. It's just another process. And I move on from there. Now, one of the nice surprises was that the score was named one of the top 10 best scores of 2018. What an honor. You don't see those things coming. But here's the thing. It 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 comes and it goes, meaning, you know, I kind of <laughs> I think of Craig's words next. It's great. It's wonderful. But then you have other things to do. And that is the lesson that I've learned. From all these other lessons, all these other opportunities where I thought, oh, I've made it, or this is going to be breaking out my career. 
that that doesn't I want to say it doesn't happen, but it happens, but it doesn't mean that for me. If I get to write music and get paid for it and and have someone pay for the musicians and we get to create together, that is an amazing gift. And that's what the journey is for me now. So I write my own music. I will music edit when someone asks me. And I continually put myself out for composing jobs. And I continue this process because it's all about the process and not about the product. So that's it. This is where I am today. I continue in the process. I continue looking for opportunities. But I remember that there is no such thing as making it. There is no it. What there is, is the journey. What there is, is encouraging each other in this journey. It's discovering who you are in the journey. It's discovering what you have to offer. Meaning, what do you want to say? You know, I started doing some drawing. And some days, I don't know what I'm drawing, but then eventually it emerges. And that's just for me. It helps me open up and it leads to other things in my process. And that's what we're talking about again is the process. All right, people. Next week, we will have on the show Katie Lee. Now, Katie Lee is a voice artist. She's done so many voices. When I start playing stuff for you, you're going to go, I've heard that voice. I first knew her from Adventures in Odyssey. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. Until then, take care of yourself and remember, if I'm doing it, why not you? Why not you?